Matthew 15, verses 21 through 28. Matthew 15, 21 through 28. And I titled this, this uh, message, A Woman of Great Faith. For this woman in this passage is a woman of great faith, even in the midst of trials. And I think we have something to learn from her as we look at this text. So Matthew 15, starting at verse 21. If you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. And a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the applying of His Word. Amen. You may be seated. So as we read through this passage, it's important to note that this is the second time in the book of Matthew that Jesus tells someone that they have great faith. The first time was the Roman centurion who asked to have his servant healed in uh, Matthew 8.10. He wasn't one of the religious leaders of the day, but instead he was an ordinary person, a Roman soldier who recognized who Jesus was and recognized Jesus' authority. It's also interesting to note that this, the second time that he tells someone they have great faith, happens shortly after the instance where Peter walked on water. And Peter, what does he say to Peter when Peter's walking on water and he begins to sink? What does he say to Peter? Look at Matthew 14, 28-33, just a page or so before in your Bibles. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened and began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind stopped and those who were in the boat worshipped him saying, you are certainly God's Son. So he says, You of little faith, why did you doubt? And now just a few paragraphs later in the Gospel of Matthew, just a short time later chronologically, he tells this woman that her faith is great. So as we look at this passage, I don't want to be too hard on Peter, right? For as T mentioned a couple of weeks ago when he sang, that, Jesus, that, that Peter saw Jesus and got out of the boat. But I do want to contrast Peter's faith with the faith of this woman from Canaan. Because we don't want to have little faith, but instead we want to be like her and have great 
faith. So let's start off with a little bit of background. The book of Matthew uh, follows Jesus' ministry all the way through up to chapter 14. And when we get to chapter 14, we see John the Baptist being beheaded. And then Jesus feeds the 5,000. And then He calls Peter to step out of the boat and walk on water. And then in chapter 15, we read about this altercation between Jesus and the Pharisees. Some Pharisees came all the way from Jerusalem to where He was. They traveled just to address Jesus in this way. And these Pharisees, they're religious leaders, they come to Him to accuse Him of not holding fast to human traditions. And it was in this altercation that Jesus pointed out that they were actually placing their human traditions above the truth of Scripture. See, Jesus teaches in that passage that it's not that which enters the man that defiles him, but instead the problem is that our hearts are wicked. It's what's inside of our hearts. And I, I uh, was talking to Kim last night and I said, I'm going to use the bottle illustration. And she said, you could probably get anybody up there right, and do the bottle illustration because you've done it so much. Right? So for those of you who haven't seen this, right, what's happening? Right. Why is water coming out of the bottle? Because there's water in the bottle, right? Not because I'm hitting the Bible, not because I'm provoking, but because, because water is what's inside of the bottle. And the same is true with us. That when we are provoked, what comes out of us, it comes out because it's what's inside of us. See, Jesus says it's not that which enters a man. It's not the food that he eats. It's not the traditions that he holds. The problem is that man's heart is wicked. And that's the point of the passage leading up to this in chapter 15 of Matthew. So, then we get to Matthew 15, verse 21. Right after that teaching, it says this, Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. So immediately after teaching that message about what's in a man that that, uh, defiles him, it's inside of him is the problem, it's his heart that is wicked, he withdraws to this area. To this area. Uh, he withdraws from the Sea of Galilee and Tyre and Sidon, they're two cities which lay on the Mediterranean coastline there, about 35 miles uh, from Capernaum. And Sidon's just, or Tyre is anyway, Sidon's a little bit beyond that. And in Jesus' time, this area was part of Syria. It's interesting you travel to Israel today and the tension that exists naturally between Israel and Syria, and that tension is not. New, right? This is also ancient Phoenicia. And the, that's the reason that when you look at this passage in the Gospel of Mark, the woman is described as a Syrophoenician woman. It's using the more historical term. And here in Matthew, she's referred to as a Canaanite woman. See, we don't know from the text exactly why Jesus withdraws to this region. But it's probable that He did so to escape the attempts of some to make him king, and of others, to kill him. That many wanted to make Jesus king, others wanted to kill him, but his time had not yet come. His ministry was not done. In fact, the Gospel of Mark indicates that he wanted no one to know where he was. So if you look at Mark 7.24, that says that he withdrew, not wanting anyone to know where he was. Yet this woman finds him and comes seeking his help. So while it doesn't seem as though he came here to minister, the need is ready and waiting for him when he shows up. 
Um, how many of you have ever felt like that? When you withdraw just to get away, and the need is there before you even get there. If you've ever been in ministry, or if you've ever done any kind of ministry, sometimes it seems like that. It seems like you pull away and the, there's just constant need. The need is always before us. I was thinking about the disciples and how they must have felt. Right? It's easy to relate to them. They had a long, hard, two-day walk. They're climbing from the Sea of Galilee through these mountains, the Lebanese mountains, and then descending 2,000 feet through this broken terrain. And what would they want to do? They'd want to rest, very naturally. And consequently, they asked Jesus for privacy. Mark 7, they withdraw. And then this woman comes, pestering them with her cries for help. Right? And to my shame, I can see myself being among the grumblers and the disciples saying, can't you just get rid of her, Jesus? Right? Well, look at Matthew 15, 22 through 23. A Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon possessed. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. The book of Matthew, written primarily to a Jewish audience, as I mentioned, uses this term, Canaanite woman. Um, it's understandable because Matthew was trying to show his Jewish audience just how shocking and unexpected this interaction was. That he wasn't, they weren't expecting a Canaanite woman to come to Jesus and to say these things. You see, the Canaanites are the people that once inhabited this area and they were despised by by the Jews. They were despised above all the other Gentiles. They were the people who inhabited the promised land before the Jews took over that land. The long and bitter wars of, of Judges, if you read Judges, is all about the wars between the, the people of God and the Canaanites. And it cemented this tradition into hate. So Matthew specifically draws attention to the fact that this woman was a Canaanite. She's a woman who the Jews would have hated, whom the disciples would have disliked. And the interaction that follows is a fourfold process by which Jesus, in his responses, allows this woman to demonstrate great faith prior to healing her daughter. So, this woman, she finds Jesus and she cries out, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon possessed. We don't know much about the condition of this woman's daughter, right? Other than the description given here that she's demon-possessed. But we do know that the situation was obviously pretty desperate. The woman's desperation is demonstrated by a couple of factors. Number one, the fact that she came to visit a Jewish man for help. As I'm getting water on my chin here. She comes to this Jewish man for help Firstly, and secondly, by her persistence in seeking that help. She's very persistent. This woman's deep love for her daughter is evident. And she undoubtedly had made previous attempts to help her daughter. It's highly unlikely that this just happened and that Jesus happened to be there at this time and this was the first time she had attempted to address the situation. Oftentimes, I know in my life, Jesus, unfortunately, to my shame, is not where I turn first. 
And for this woman, this Canaanite woman, it is unlikely that this Jewish teacher would have been the first place she turned. Being a Canaanite woman, she probably would have sought the help of her pagan goddess, Astarte. And while it may seem practical or even nice or neat to follow a goddess made of stone when things are going well, when trouble comes, right? It became obvious that this false goddess could not be of assistance. And the same is true in our lives. It's, it's maybe in our culture, it's uh, ideal uh, within our culture to follow these false goddesses, to set up gods and goddesses that aren't really gods or goddesses at all. Instead of worshiping the one true God, to worship idols. Remember when 9-11, we just celebrated the anniversary of 9-11, and our youngest was born on that day. And I remember the churches just being full for a couple of weeks after 9-11. After the Twin Towers were attacked, people were returning to the church because they had nowhere else to turn. They couldn't turn to their money anymore. They couldn't turn to their possessions. They certainly weren't going to turn to these false gods that they had been worshiping. And they thought, I must turn somewhere. So where will I turn? But it didn't last, for their turning was not genuine. Their turning was not real. As soon as things got better, they returned back to their false gods or false goddesses. But this woman, she's different. You know, in light of her background, it's interesting to note that this Gentile woman would approach Jesus with such confidence. By using the term Son of David, she was plainly confessing that He was the Messiah. Look at Matthew 1.1. Matthew 1.1 begins this way. It says, The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah the son of David, the son of Abraham. The Messiah. That the son of David was the Messiah, the chosen one. That He was the one who was going to come and rescue His people. That He was going to save the people from their sins. And you have to wonder, how did she learn this? Where did this woman know that this Jesus was the son of David? She calls Him Lord Son of David, my Master, the Messiah. If you look at Mark 3.8, we get a better understanding of how this may have happened. Mark 3.8 says this. So we can look at Mark 3.7 starting there. Jesus withdrew to the sea with His disciples, and a great multitude from Galilee followed, and also from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea, and beyond the Jordan, and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. A great number of people heard of all that He was doing and came to Him. So we see Jesus early on in His ministry, and people are beginning to follow Him from all over, including Tyre and Sidon. You see, these people are among those who listened to Jesus. They witnessed His miracles. And they brought news back to the region. Which, by the way, is an appropriate response to an interaction with Jesus. That when we see the real Jesus, the appropriate response is always to bring the news back. To say, you won't believe what I saw. You won't believe what I heard. It was Jesus, the Son of David, the Messiah. It was true then and it's true today. That when we meet Jesus, when we know Jesus, the real Jesus, that we can't help but tell others 
about Jesus. And apparently that's what happened to these people. They went, they listened to Jesus, and they came back to Tyre. They came back to Sidon. And they said, you need to know this. And this woman was touched. This woman said, I've been struggling. I've been praying to this goddess. My daughter's sick. I need to meet this Jesus. Because this false goddess, this goddess of stone, this idol that I've constructed, is of no help. It's of no value. I need to meet this Jesus. So this Canaanite woman comes to Jesus, forsaking her trust in her goddess, and asking Him, asking Jesus for help. Her request demonstrates a faith that is repentant. Right? She's turning away from what she had previously trusted in. She's turning away from her idols. And it, she, her faith is now directed toward Jesus. I've talked a lot about when I came to Christ at the age of 19 and how I was, I was heading this way and God picked me up and He turned me around. And that's what repentance is. It's, he picked me up and said, you're heading the wrong way. He turned me around and said, now head this way. Follow after me. It was more than sorrow. right? It was a complete change of direction. I should have been sorry for my sin. And even when I was headed this way, still deeper and deeper into my sin, there were times of sorrow. But repentance was saying, I must turn. I must follow something else. And that something else was someone else. It was Jesus. And God revealed that to me. And in the same way, this woman, she's repentant. She's turning away from this false goddess. And she's now looking toward Jesus. Her faith is directed toward Him. So how does Jesus respond? Quite interesting. He doesn't answer her. Not a word. I think it's uh, the only time that I can think of in the New Testament where Jesus is just silent in such a situation. At first reading of this passage, it seems almost as though Jesus is rude. Um, first, he ignores her, right? And then twice, he explains that she's not a priority. He just ignores what she says, and then he's like, listen, you're not a priority right now. Um, one of those times referring to her as a dog. And then ultimately, he heals her daughter. See, understandably, the commentaries, in studying this, the commentaries, they struggle in their attempts to fathom and understand the attitude of Jesus toward this Syrophoenician woman. However, Jesus isn't necessarily being harsh with the woman or being unnecessarily harsh with the woman, but rather, He's encouraging her faith. He's growing and strengthening and deepening her faith in Him. See, we don't know the tone or the body language that Jesus was using when He was speaking to the woman. But the language used here in the text points to a gentler and more provocative response right, than is often supposed at first reading in English. We read it as though Jesus, He's completely ignoring her, and then He's like, get away from me, I don't want anything to do with you. But when we read the text again, and we understand that Jesus is probably using a more gentle tone, then we begin to understand the text more clearly. See, Jesus does not answer her, not only because He has something to teach her, but also because He has something to teach the disciples. By not answering her, He elicits a response from His disciples. He brings them into the scene. And they say, send her away. For she keeps shouting at us. Almost every commentator agrees that what they are saying is not just tell her to leave, 
but just grant her request so that she'll leave us alone. See, the disciples, they know Jesus has the power to perform miracles. And they're not saying, just get her out of here. They're saying, just grant her her request. Whatever she wants, just give it to her so that she'll, she'll leave us alone enough already. That's why Jesus then responds and says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He says, you're asking me to heal her? Wait a minute. I was sent to these people. Luther said this, he said, look at how Christ drives her faith deep into her heart and it becomes strong and firm. Is this the gracious and friendly Lord? He is silent as a stone. It is a severe blow when God shows Himself so serious, angry, and distant and conceals His grace and help. However, when He does this, it's for our benefit and for our good. It's to strengthen this woman's faith. He's driving her faith deep into her heart. Look at verse 24. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So Jesus responds, finally, but not to the woman. Instead, he addresses the disciples. And he explains to the disciples the purpose of his ministry. He says, You tell me to heal her. You tell me to send her away. But I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. See, this verse is not to be understood that Christ did not die for all who would place their trust in Him, but that the Lord's preaching and His miracles, His earthly ministry was intended for the nation of Israel. The rule is laid down in Romans um, 2, verses 9-10. through Romans 2, verses 9-10 through says this, There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. You see, His ministry was to the Jew first and then to the Greek So he lays down that rule, Paul does in Romans 2. And the Samaritan woman in John 4, the woman uh, who who at the well, the centurion of Capernaum, the the centurion who comes and Jesus says, your faith is great. And the Syrophoenician woman, these three examples are the exception, not the rule. This is Jesus ministering to Greeks. But the vast majority of his ministry was to the house of Israel. In other words, that was the intent of his earthly ministry. But after he was exalted, Scripture says, he would draw all men to himself. That Jesus was serious about drawing all men to himself. And that reaching first the nation of Israel was the means by which he might begin to do that. John 12.32 says this, And if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. If I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men myself. So it's after the death, the burial, and the resurrection that we really see the fulfillment of Jesus' full ministry, drawing all men to Himself. So getting back to our text, uh, verse 25, Matthew 15, verse 25 says this, But she came and began to bow down before Him, saying, Lord, help me. The Greek here makes it clear that she prostrated herself before Jesus. That she she bowed down low. She laid down and worshipped 
Jesus. And this word is often translated worship. That worship is a bowing down, a laying down of oneself, a letting go of everything we have and laying it all at the feet of Jesus. And that's what she does. She prostrates herself before Him and addresses Him as Lord. This woman's response shows that her faith continues to be repentant. She continues to turn away from her the things she's trusted in in the past. And it's also directed toward the true Jesus, right? Not just another idol on the shelf. It's not just, oh, well, I'll try this Jesus thing and see if this works. Even when he ignores her, even when he addresses the disciples and says, I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel, not to these people. She still bows down and worships him and begs him and says, Lord, she understands who Jesus is. He's the one true God. The one in whom she can have hope. And then verse 26, And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. When we read this in English, it seems as though Jesus' reply turns from coldness to being downright mean. The word dog is not as harsh as it sounds, right? The term used here refers to a small household pet rather than the the dogs on the street. Even so though, right? So it's not as harsh as it seems. But even so, I don't want you to take away from this that Jesus was complimenting her. For the, the term, the remarks are far from a compliment. The words children and dogs were common vernacular of the day. Children referring to Jews and dogs referring to Gentiles. So this woman's probably pretty familiar with these terms. And she understands that this is not a compliment. That instead, he's pointing to the fact that she is a Gentile. That she is outside of the covenant people of God. Yet she's undeterred. She's completely undeterred. She didn't defend herself or try to argue that she is worthy. She didn't say, yeah, but you don't understand. I'm a good Gentile. She didn't say, yeah, but you don't understand. I've done a lot of good things in my life. Or, how can you call me a dog? How dare you? Instead, she recognized that she was unworthy. She was humble in heart. And she accepted the truth of what was being said to her. You see, pride is an enemy of the Gospel. Pride is what stands in the way of our relationship with God. Where we say, no, I don't need you, God. I have this other thing. Or I have confidence in myself. She didn't have confidence in herself. She saw that she was unworthy. Look at verse 27. But she said, yes, Lord. But even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Note that for the third time, she addresses him as Lord. And her answer shows that her faith has not gotten smaller through this trial. But it's gotten stronger. Through this time of pleading, her faith has gotten stronger. She says, yes, but... And her yes denotes complete assent. And the but doesn't denote contradiction. So don't read the but and think, oh, she's, she's contradicting Jesus. Instead, it should be translated as yet or for even. So what she's saying is, yes, that is true. Yet even dogs 
get to eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. This woman, in her wrestling with God, she doesn't argue that she's worthy, but instead she pleads for grace. Her final response shows that her faith continued to be repentant. Right? She was turning away from the things she previously trusted in. That it was directed toward Jesus, the true Jesus, the one and only true God, the Messiah. That it was persistent. That she would not be deterred. And it was also rooted in humility. As Jesus said in Luke 18, He said, He who humbles himself shall be exalted. She understood the importance of being humble before the Messiah. And then look at verse 28, lastly. Then Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. Up until this point, the Greek word beginning each verse has been the word uh, for but or and. Right? All of these verses, they're but or and. Whereas in verse 28, it is then. Or more literally, then finally. So 28 says, Then finally Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. O woman, your faith is great. Peter undoubtedly heard this statement. Can you imagine being Peter? You're standing there. You're the guy who walked on water. right? You're the guy who got out of the boat. All these disciples, they stayed in the boat. You got out of the boat. You walked on water. And Jesus said, oh, you of little faith. And some two, three days later, you're standing there and here's this Canaanite woman. Canaanite. A woman. And you're a Jewish man. And Jesus says, oh woman, your faith is great. Can you imagine being Peter? You see, great faith is found in one who is repentant. He turns away from his idols. He turns away from the things he once trusted in. And it's persistent. It's persistent in turning toward Jesus in humility. Great faith is found in one who in the midst of storms keeps his gaze locked on Jesus. Peter saw the storm around him and he looked away and he began to sink. He looked away from Jesus. The Canaanite woman, she saw the storm around her. The sickness of her daughter. The fact that she was unworthy to receive help. And what did she do? She fixed her eyes on Jesus. And Jesus said, it shall be done for you. Despite being a Gentile and therefore unclean, this woman's great faith renders her clean. See, I believe there's no mistake that this event happens immediately after Matthew 15. I think sometimes we read the Gospels and we forget that the Gospels are written as one narrative. And they're written in such a way that we are not supposed to just take one passage, read it by itself, take another passage, read it by itself, that they're connected. That, that the events leading up to this, that, Jesus, that Peter walking on water plays into how they would have understood this. That the teaching of these Pharisees who were saying, you're eating this food that's unclean, and Jesus saying, it's not what enters a man that makes him unclean, but it's what's inside of him that makes him unclean. It's his heart. That these things are connected. See, Jesus taught that one's heart is what makes one acceptable before God. Not following the traditions of men. And Jesus took the opportunity to show this woman her real need. 
not the need for her daughter to be healed, but the need for her to be in a right relationship with Jesus, for her to see who he was as the Messiah and to deepen her trust in him. So the Canaanite woman in the midst of trial, she doesn't waver from calling him Lord. She places her trust in him and him alone as her Savior. So the question is this, how do we apply all of this both individually and corporately here at Harmony Bible Church? Well, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I pray today that you would have great faith. Faith that is repentant, that turns away from the things you've been trusting in. Faith that is directed toward the true Jesus. Not just Jesus in name, but the true Jesus, the Jesus of the Scriptures. The Jesus who is fully God, fully man, who died on the cross for your sins so that you might be forgiven, who was raised to newness of life on that third day. The Jesus who is coming back to rescue you. To bring you home to heaven with Him. Directed toward the true Jesus and persistent. Not unwavering, right? True faith, great faith, is not unwavering. But it's persistent. There are times when I get up in the morning and I say, Lord, I believe. Help me to overcome my unbelief. There are times when our faith it wavers and it's shaken, but it must be persistent. And how do I know? How do I know that tomorrow morning I'm going to get up and still be a believer in Jesus Christ? Not by my effort, but by the grace of God. Only by His grace can I say, tomorrow I'm going to get up and I'm still going to say, yep, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the one who died for my sins. My trust is in Him and in Him alone. It's not because I'm smart enough or strong enough to hold on to that. It's because He is strong enough to hold on to me. So it's persistent. Even in my weakness. And I pray that you have a faith that is repentant, that is directed toward Jesus, that is persistent, and that is rooted in humility, that sees your need for grace. Knowing that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God in His grace sent His Son to die on the cross for you. But for most of us, right? most of us are here because we are a follower of Jesus. And I pray that for those of us in that situation, that we would share the Gospel, that we would recognize our calling to go and share the Gospel like these people from Tyre and Sidon did when they met Jesus. They saw the real Jesus. They took it back. They took it back to where they lived so that this woman could respond in faith, so that she knew who Jesus was. We have that same responsibility. Not because of the people that are out there so much as because of who Jesus is. He's worthy of us testifying to who He is. But also, if we're a follower of Jesus, I pray that you too have that great faith that can carry you through life's storms. You know, I was thinking, this, is a, this morning is a difficult time, I think, in the life of our church. It's a difficult time in the sense that, that we're, we're at a place where Our hearts are heavy. We know that Ma's not here with us today. We know that she's going through this storm right now in the hospital. And that as a small church, we're a family. And that it affects all of us. And that 
This is a storm that we must weather together. And I pray that as we do that, we'll share the Gospel with each other. That we'll remember this woman of great faith, the Syrophoenician woman, the, the woman you'd least expect to be called a woman of great faith. But it's faith that's repentant. Faith that was forsaking all else. Not trusting in the things of this world. That as we walk through this storm, that we won't trust in the things of this world, but we instead will know that this life is but a vapor. That we're here one minute and we are gone the next. So why trust in the things of this world? Instead, we look to the spiritual world. We look to the things of heaven. And that we direct our faith toward the true Jesus. Knowing that not everyone who says to Him, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. That not just calling Jesus Lord is enough, but instead we must be like this woman who trusted in Jesus as her Lord. We must also direct our faith toward the Jesus who knows that as we do that, Romans 8, 28 and 29 says that He's going to work all things together for good for those who love Him, for those who are called according to His purpose. That He is going to use this situation for His glory and for our good. Praise Him for that. And as we walk through this storm, we must be persistent. Not unwavering, but persistent. There are times when our faith is shaken. I remember when I stepped down from ministry for a period of time, I have to say, my faith was persistent, but it was not unwavering. There were days when that was hard. It was one of the hardest things I ever did. But, but, I knew what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And that's where we need to place our trust today. In the work of the Lord. Knowing what He has done for us. Knowing that we are called to be persistent. And direct our faith toward Him. And then we need to be rooted in humility. Remembering that it's all about His grace. It's not about us. Not about what we've done. But it's about Him. And bringing glory to Him because He has given us grace. He has given us mercy. Even when we were the most undeserving. Let's pray. Father God, thank You for today. Thank You for an opportunity to be here together as a family. God, I can't think of a better place to be on earth. And God, I just pray and ask that You would just knit our hearts together. Help us, Lord, as we grow in our faith. God, I praise You for the the trials of life, the storms that come that deepen our faith. God, may we remember Your promises. May we remember the truth of Romans 8, 28 and 29. God, that You are working all things together to make us more like Your Son, Jesus Christ. And God, I just pray and ask that You would just confirm in us, that You would just strengthen us in that promise. Help us to see it more clearly today. God, give us wisdom as we care for and love one another, knowing that the trials of life are not easy, but they are meant to direct us toward You. God, help us to not trust in the things of the world, to instead trust only in Your Son, Jesus Christ, and to be persistent in that faith, humbly seeking His face. 
We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.